And so having those real life examples and not having to solely depend on, say, media to tell me who I am or what I could be or what the possibilities were for me. I think that Hawaii really did provide that because I had these these women and these gender nonconforming people around um, in my everyday. And so it felt a lot more intimate and close. I feel like you two are saying that imperialism and colonialism aren't always good. Is that I mean, is that what's happening here? <laughs> That's ironic because we're speaking is that what's English. Happening? I just want to be yes. clear. <laughs> <laughs> From Topic and Earwolf, this is Politically Reactive. I'm W. Kamau Bell. And I'm the, the Hurry Kundabola. The show where two comedians, one with an article problem, try to make sense of politics in America. <laughs> I don't know why we keep saying that, because we're not going to, but all right. On today's show, we're talking to writer, TV host, advocate, change maker, lightning rod, and all-around butt kicker, Janet Mock. In fact, it might be better if we let her describe herself. Here she is earlier this year at the Women's March on Washington. I stand here today as the daughter of a native Hawaiian woman and a black veteran from Texas. I stand here as the first person in my family to go to college. I stand here as someone who has written herself onto this stage to unapologetically proclaim that I am a trans woman, writer, activist, revolutionary of color. And as an advocate for trans women, she founded Hashtag Girls Like Us and Hashtag Trans Book Drive. She also hosts the podcast Never Before with Lenny Letter. Her writing has appeared in such publications as The New Yorker, Mary Claire, Allure, and The Advocate. And her first book from 2014 was a New York Times bestseller. <sighs> I don't know anything about how to write a New York Times bestseller. It's entitled Redefining Realness. My path to womanhood, identity, love, and so much more. The legendary feminist writer and my friend, Bell Hooks, called her memoir a life map for transformation. And earlier this month, Janet released her second book, Surpassing Certainty, What My 20s Taught Me. On today's show, we're going to talk about some of the issues facing the trans community today and why it has taken our show so long to talk about those issues. It's all coming up on Politically Reactive. Hey, everybody. It's Hurry here. Uh, We're recording this on Tuesday, June 20th. Kamau and I just interviewed Janet Mock. It's a fantastic interview. I can't wait for you to hear it in a few moments. Um, Kamau is not here right now because he is a very busy person, and so he had to go somewhere else. So I am doing the intro without him today, but not alone. I'm joined by my younger brother, Ashokan Dabolu. Hello. I sell fidget spinners by uh, Penn Station now, so this is very convenient for me to come up here. You what now? <laughs> fidget spinners. What's Those, a fidget spinner? You know what a fidget spinner is? No. It's this uh, toy that's sweeping the nation. You haven't seen any of the videos of kids spinning the little metal gadget on their finger? You mean a top? No, it's it's like an it's similar to a top. It's called a fidget spinner. I really can't believe you haven't heard about that. Wait, so they ju- they just rebranded tops as fidget spinners? No, they're just they're, they 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 work like tops, but you spin them on your finger and they keep going and going and going and they become very popular. They're being pumped out by in factories in China by the millions. <laughs> I'm not I'm not kidding at all. That's so weird. <laughs> I have not seen this at all. Uh, in fact, my brother was not selling uh, these new age tops at uh, at Penn Station. We had just returned from doing three shows in two days, 
at uh, Improv Boston in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, it was really good. All shows were all the shows were fantastic. It was a really fun run. Mm-hmm. Um, the only crappy part about it is Father's Day was Sunday, mm-hmm. and my brother and I, while we were on the train, realized, oh no, we missed Father's Day. Yes. And that's bad enough, right? The fact that, like, oh, we forgot it was Father's Day. The worst part is the fact that our father had just driven both of us to the train station. We said nothing to him regarding Father's Day. Forgot completely. Then we took a train, a subway, into Penn Station, got on another train, both passed out midway through the trip. Oh, crap! Father's Day! At which point I texted my dad, Happy Father's Day. He responded, Thanks. Uh, and that was that. And then we went to Sears and bought him a, a starter toolkit with a hammer and a screwdriver, and he was happy. We did not do that. It's all it's all scam. What Father's Day? Yeah, to sell uh, you know wrenches and stuff. You wait. You think it was it was it's a... like flowers and candy on Mother's Day? That that lobby makes Mother's Day a thing, and then the you know the Home Depot Sears axis makes Father's Day a thing, and you know the world keeps spinning. <laughs> I don't I don't buy it. Ashok and I are doing shows in New York on June 27th at Littlefield in Brooklyn. We're bringing our Untitled Kondabolu Brothers project show that, like I said, we just did in Cambridge slash Boston. We're bringing it to Brooklyn, New York on June 27th. And then we're doing it in my dear Seattle June 29th and 30th at the Theater Off Jackson. Uh, tickets are still available. We'd love to see you there. It's a fun show. We just Great. basically go up and we talk to each other and people pay to see that. Mm-hmm. And it's guided and shaped by a PowerPoint presentation. A a well-constructed PowerPoint presentation. Graphics heavy. Very graphic heavy. It's a multimedia presentation and and entertainment extravaganza for the whole family. You know, that's what we should call it from now on. Instead of my selling point, which is it's two brothers talking to each other in front of an audience who paid for it, I should say it's a multimedia extravaganza Fit for the whole, whole family, family. Yeah. except when we talk about uh, death, sex, uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, you have to get them started young, or else, uh, or else they're not going to believe that those things are real. <laughs> <laughs> they think they're going to live forever, and they're right, not right. going to know what sex is, and that right. the government's you know not lying to them. Yeah, so yeah. When you, when you, so bring your eight-year-olds, <laughs> especially the ones yeah. that drink, and yeah. put uh, them in the front row. Yeah. Also, it's it's twenty one over, so make sure the kids have fake IDs, <laughs> and uh, get a get a get a fake mustache on them. It's cute. It's cute. We won't say anything. We won't say anything. Quick bit of news: um, behind closed doors, the Republican Senate leaders are drafting a bill to replace Obamacare, aka the Affordable Care Act, in an attempt to shield the bill and Republicans from criticism. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is keeping it under wraps. Mm. Which is, uh... It's a real brotherhood of evil DC <laughs> Comics style demonry move there. It's old school demonry. Yeah, it's unreal. I'm keeping uh, the healthcare bill under Close wraps. Close the door. <laughs> the GOP healthcare bill is being advanced to the Senate using a process called reconciliation. This means the bill can be fast tracked over the budget and can avoid a filibuster by Senate Democrats. The calling it reconciliation, mm-hmm. that's classic demon stuff. Yeah, it's a very Orwellian call it the opposite of what it is. You could call having an affair reconciliation, <laughs> <laughs> funneling your, your spouse's money into a secret bank account is now known as reconciliation, <laughs> reconciling your bank accounts. You, could, you can microwave a family pet. 
You can say I'm, I was reconciling with the family pet. You can say all sorts of stuff now. And uh, things mean what you say they mean, apparently. Uh, the, the Senate Republicans don't even know what's in the bill. Uh, Senator Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine, who actually is, is a moderate and is quite decent, said, quote, Until I see the bill and the Congressional Budget Office assessment of the bill, I'm not going to feel comfortable taking a position. That's her, her brave stand on the issue. That's her the brave stand. Is hey, until I know what this thing is, I'm not going to feel one way or another about it, all right? I got I to, gotta, you know, hold the line on that. <laughs> and, and everyone else is like, yeah, I'll vote for it. I'm sure it's, I'm sure this, it's pretty this good. This what I'm supposed to do? Okay. <laughs> Close the door. <laughs> a little bit of housekeeping. I want to give you all the heads up that uh, Kamau and I are taking a two-week break. So we won't have shows on June 29th and July 6th. On another note, uh, if you want to sport some politically reactive swag, we have new T-shirts. Just visit podswag.com slash PR or podswag.com slash politically reactive. Both of those websites work, and you can have our faces on your chest. Also, we have another live show coming up. Uh, Kamau and I will be at the Now Hear This Podcast Festival on September 9th. That's a Saturday. The podcast festival goes from the 8th to 10th in New York City. We're just performing on the 9th. You can find tickets at nowhearthisfest.com. You get to see 25 live shows with that ticket. And if you use the offer code REACTIVE, you save $20. Go to nowhearthisfest.com. Also, we're going to do a mailbag episode soon. So if you have a question or comment, please write to us at Politically reactive at firstlook.org. That's politically reactive at firstlook.org. Thanks to those who have already written in. We have an amazing list of potential guests and topics, and we're very excited. Have anything else to say? Uh, not really. I just want people to come and see us perform June 27th, Littlefield, Brooklyn, New York, and June 29th and 30th at the Theater of Jackson in Seattle. I'll be in a rare form. What does that mean, you'll be in rare form? Uh, it means absolutely nothing. Our guest today is Janet Mock. She's the author of two enthralling books, and today we're talking to her about her latest, Surpassing Certainty, What My 20s Taught Me. This is a fantastic interview. I think you'll have a good time. Uh, and uh, Ashok, thank you for being part of this intro. Yeah, no problem. All right, here's Janet. Thank you for being on the show, first of all. Thanks for having me. Hari, this is where you say thank you. Oh, I was you said to roll right into the interview. So I'm like, all right, all right. Janet Hari's <laughs> not into it. He's not into it. Janet, I'm, like, into, I'm, into, it. Into, Janet, I'm totally into it. I'm really excited that you're on the show and I'm shocked I haven't met you yet. So I'm 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 really excited that you agreed to do this. I know Twitter has that strange thing where you follow someone for like three plus years yeah. and you don't even meet in person and you're just like, oh, I see you every day though. So right, right. Cool. I know all your thoughts and feelings. I know about your family. It's all up there. Yeah. <laughs> I know who's saying mean things about you on the internet that we're replying to, but I don't know you. Yeah. Uh, so my first question is, uh, this is your second book just came out uh, that, is, that I haven't read yet, but I'm super excited to read it. Uh, your first book came out. It was a New York Times bestseller. I wrote a book recently that was not a New York Times bestseller. How do I write a New York Times bestseller? <laughs> well, you're a New York Times bestseller to my mom, who came to, um, who visited me during my book launch, and she came with her Douglas County Library book, and it was your book. 
and she was reading it on the subway and everything. I swear to God, I'm not even making this up. And, you know, she's a fresh air listener, so I'm sure she probably found out about your book during your interview there. But um, how do you, I don't know. It's like a majestic thing. I know that, I know two guys who work um, in the New York Times, like they work on the list or whatnot. And, you know, the list is very, you know, secret. So I don't really know how you do it. I just know you have to like be out there, push your book, continue to push your book, irritate your followers for about a month and a half. <laughs> You'll lose a lot of followers who are just really over you. Um, but it's a sacrifice you have to make. Or you can also just get into a split screen argument with a cable television host. And that tends to also help you boost sales. <laughs> so it's a tr- super oh, traumatic that- experiences. Either whore yourself out online by pushing, shilling your product or get into a traumatic argument with someone on national television. I feel like you're thinking about a split screen argument that happened to you. Is that true? Oh God, yes, yeah. Um, and it was so strange that it happened the night of my when my first book came out, Redefining Realness, and um, it just was a, a strange experience where it just was like the internet was talking and I was talking and feeling, and you know, then also having to be in my body and and trying to explain my identity and my experiences and then also my community's identities and experiences in a soundbited moment. Um, And so I think that the whole um, conversation was a confusing conversation for a lot of people who are watching, I think. And so it propelled them to want to know more and hear more from me because they could see that I wasn't really being heard from or listened to. And Mm -hmm. so I think that it helped push, push the book even more. But Overwhelmingly, a lot of the book had sold, the first book had sold largely through grassroots efforts. You know, a lot of people knew that it was a pioneering text in the sense that it was the first from a young trans person, someone who transitioned as, you know, as a teenager, and the first from a person of color. And so I think that the, tra- the transition memoir genre had been around for decades. And so it was the first time that I think these two intersections of generation and also race were brought into the genre. And so it felt like a, a thing that people wanted to, to get behind. So that really was really, really, really helpful and has helped continue the, for the book to be out there and to have its own life and enable me to, to write um, a continuation of, of my story and my experience. Janet, the book is all about your 20s. Can you tell us why you wanted to write about that period? Like, What is it about that particular period of your life that you felt was important to share? And also as a follow-up, like, can you talk about your writing process? Like, Did you draw in journals that you kept from the time? Like, how did, you, did you have source material? Like, how, did you, how were you able to, to bring that to life after this many years? Yeah, I feel like the 20s thing is like a marketing thing from the publisher. Like they're like, your 20s experience. Because it, it literally is like from 19 to 25. It's not really my full 20s. Um, but I'll roll with it. Whatever works. Um, sure. But it, <laughs> it's largely the years in my life when um, I decided not to be open and vocal about being trans. I had transitioned. You know, my first memoir was largely about my transition as a teenager. And so by the time I go to college, I'm fully largely content in my body, comfortable with myself. Um, And so I want to do all the things that my classmates and my peers were able to do, which is to go to college, have roommates, problematic roommates, um, (laughs) you know, find partners and date and, you know, get internships and, you know, move away from home, all of that good stuff. And so 
it's under it's a 20s experience in the sense that it's a young person's journey but under the unique context of being a young trans woman of color who's not open and vocal about being trans and so for me what I found so interesting about that that time period um, as a writer and also as someone who lived through it was that a lot of people asked me how are you able to do this how are you able to do that and largely a lot of that came through the the context of um, being selectively open about a piece of and a facet of my identity, something that now I'm so open about. And so it's like the prelude to me being so open and vocal. And so I think it's a lot about being in process um, and figuring out a lot of that stuff. And for me, I actually wanted to write this book first, but I knew that I needed to get the, you know, the transition memoir stuff out of the way and tell the story of my body before being able to tell a larger story about what it means to exist in this culture, in this society, mm. um, in this particular body. And I pulled a lot from, I had some, I did some journals during that time. That was really the time when I really started um, turning inward and writing for so long. A lot of my, um, younger years, I was studying journalism, and so I was writing about other people, and I think that it was a productive layer for me in the sense that it enabled me to hide myself in other people's stories um, and to craft the conversation and to ask the questions, and so when I had to do that to myself through journals, um, and even now I still I still write largely on a legal pad, longhand. Um, I can't be on the computer because I'll get really distracted by mm. Twitter or Instagram or something, um, so I have to have all electronics off. I sit there with my legal pad and write longhand and then I transcribe it into the computer and that enables me to then also edit as I'm transcribing instead of edit as I'm writing on the computer which really you really can't for me I can't produce that way anyway do you feel more invested when you write on a legal pad because whenever like I write jokes and stuff I, I feel more comfortable writing with hand with my handwriting because it feels real and I feel like so much uh, mm. electronic stuff just feels like you know we text constantly we're emailing things it's nothing we tweet there's nothing that has real meaning or investment the way uh, it probably should but when I write I'm like this is me nobody else is seeing this this is it's me and this paper there's no record of it anywhere it's me and this paper I'm invested in this moment like do you feel that same way I do, and I think you really hit the you hit it there in the sense that for me it's like it feels like a much more full, intimate exchange because it's just me and the paper and this pen. Um, and I also like the feeling of physically facing a blank sheet of paper. Um, that's you know it's really daunting, it's really challenging, but there's something about being able to fill you know, fill 10 um, to 20 pages within a couple of hours and having this physical embodiment of all my thoughts and mm. stories and narrative right there in front of me. Whereas when it's a Word doc, I feel like it's kind of, you just see one page. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> Or right. like actually like just like three-fourths <laughs> of a page. And so like you don't have that same like payoff. And I also like the feeling of like, grabbing a sheet of paper and like ripping it up and like throwing it away and then being like, okay, we're going to start all over on this page. And so I think there is something about that, the physicality of, of the process that probably for me is, is even more rewarding. It's also very strange to hear someone actually ask me about the writing process. So I appreciate that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's something we all think about, right? Like when we're, we're actually putting our you know feelings and thoughts into the world, like what is the most effective way I'm, you know, to allow us to do that without like, you know, slipping into these these fake constraints we put on ourselves. So I think it's it's incredible. Mm. Well, well uh, off that topic, is there another question that you'd like to be asked that you don't feel like is asked enough? Oh, God. 
Well, largely, I think the reason why I said the comment um, about being asked about writing is that a lot of people ask me about the content, which I think is great. Or they ask me, they use my book as a way to talk about you know, political issues that are going on, which is fine and which is vital and important, of course. But I think that as a writer, sometimes I do feel kind of like um, ripped off in a sense because I rarely get to talk about like my writing process. And, you know, it takes so much time and so much work and so much investment um, to sit in a room by yourself and mm. to write. It's a solitary process. So I, I'm sure it's also not a super glamorous process to like relate to people. So maybe that's why it's not like the sexiest thing to ask. Um, whereas, you know, asking me how it was when I was like dancing in a strip club is a lot more, you know, sensational and fun. Right. Um, and so, yeah, um, I think that the writing questions is was in, is interesting to me and the, the process stuff. I think it's something that I enjoy, of course, as a writer. But how many people are writers who want to even hear that? Um, I don't know. So maybe that's why it's also not asked as much. Uh, well, another thing I want to ask you about, because when we think about the American identity, we don't often think about Hawaii as being a part of the American identity. And so when even talking about your upbringing – you know, I've, I've read a lot how you talk about how growing up uh, trans in Hawaii is different than how it would probably be growing up in any other place in America. Can you talk about that? Like specifically that question around there's a different identity in Hawaiian culture that doesn't doesn't necessarily exist here in the rest of the states. Yeah, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of Native Hawaiian um, sovereignty activists would also say that Hawaii is not the United States. So I right, wanted right, to make right. sure I say that. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah. That's in, a whole other issue, that, you know, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we can get Haudani K. Trask to talk about that. Mm. But um, I think that, you know, for me growing up in Hawaii, you know, my mother is Native Hawaiian and my father's... Um, black and he's from Texas. He's in the Navy. That's how he met my mom. And, you know, um, I grew up with the context of Native Hawaiian culture in the sense that there was a space to describe people who are gender nonconforming, specifically trans folk. And so um, in Hawaii, there's a huge community, very visible, vocal, involved, integrated trans women's community. In the seventh grade, I met um, my best friend, Wendy, who was a trans girl. She was out and open. Her grandparents who were raising her was were accepting of her identity, let her live her life. And she really was a gateway for me to meet a bunch of other girls. Um, and even in the seventh grade, too, one of my, my dance teacher, um, Kumu Kauai, she identified as mahu, mahu vahine, meaning trans woman in a loosely based sense. But... Um, Mahu people are a part of um, na native Hawaiian communities in the sense that they're cultural breeders. They are seen as when you are when you have a child that's born uh, Mahu, they are seen as like your family's lucky because you're blessed with someone that can embody all different kinds of gender um, gender roles and performances and expressions. So it's not seen as like a detriment. It's seen actually as as a gift. And so growing up within that um, native Hawaiian context in the sense of like people People at least having a space to describe who I was as a young person was incredibly freeing and liberating. Um, but there also was a level of tolerance, if not acceptance, um, that enabled me to, to be seen and to be heard and to express myself as a young person. Whereas I think a lot of folk who are growing up maybe like on the mainland, I don't really know what it's like to grow up on the mainland, but I assume that there's a lot more isolation in the sense that you're probably the only trans person in school or no one around you really knows what it means to be gender non Conforming. And maybe times have changed a lot with the generation shifts, but I think that overwhelmingly, from what I hear, is that it's a lot more isolating experience than my own 
unique experience of growing up around a bunch of trans folk in the context of a multicultural space that's open about talking about um, gender identity and knowing that it exists. It's fascinating to hear you talk about this because as an Indian American, you know, in India, there's this idea of a hijra, which is like a third gender. And, you know, that this doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, exactly the same parallel. But certainly in, in India, before you know, colonization, there was a very different view about mm-hmm. gender. There was more of an openness about gender and also sexuality. Uh, it's not to say it was uh, completely open and accepting, but there was certainly a much broader view of those things. There's definitely more of a fluidity. And, and post-colonization, you you have more of this kind of Judeo-Christian sense of what gender is, what yeah. sex is. And, but, you know, you talked about this being, you know, a Hawaiian term. So is, is a lot of the the transphobia that you feel that does exist in Hawaii, maybe that came from a foreign place because it wasn't like, you know, there oh, yeah. the missionaries brought it yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah. They brought their, <laughs> yeah. they brought their, you know, uh, Christian Oh, the missionaries ideals. bring in all the things you don't want. <laughs> Diseases, all of the things. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that it definitely was a sense of where, you know, Hawaiian culture was also heavily suppressed. You know, they banned the Hawaiian language, they banned hula, they overthrew the government. So like the colonized you know, state is definitely something that Hawaii has in its blood, right? That's a part of the resistance movement, the sovereignty movement. And so I think for sure trans people or mahu vahines have been looked at in a completely different way that has totally shifted. But I think that at the root um, of Hawaiian culture, there is an acceptance and at least there is language to say that this exists, right? Um, And it's something that comes from the people versus coming from like academia where they give you these terms to describe yourself and you're supposed to learn them. And if you don't use them right, then you're wrong and you're not open enough and you're not accepting or you're transphobic, blah, blah, blah. And so for me, what I love so much of coming from a place like Hawaii is that sense that it, it's rooted in the people, that this identity has existed for a long time, that people like me have been around, that they have been integral to the culture, that they that they are accepted and loved. And sure, there is a complicated um, nature in the way in which people have used religion in a way to to separate people, to, to contain people, to try to police people's identities and have them police one another. And so that, of course, is still there um, in, in contemporary Hawaiian culture. But I think the roots of the native resistance has brought that back out. One of the uh, main activists in the sovereignty movement is a is a trans woman named um, Kumuhina. She has a documentary written um, that's about her, and she's a teacher as well um, in a Hawaiian immersion program. And she's one of she was. I remember she was like in her. I think she probably was like twenty years old when I was in high school, and I remember thinking that she was like this grand adult or something. But I, <laughs> but she was always this presence in my life, and she was like the one of the women that I could point to when I was younger. They're like, oh wow. I can go out and like live my life and, you know, exist in the daytime and have a job and be respected as a trans woman. And it's not this, you know, scary thing. And so having those real life examples and not having to solely depend on, say, media to tell me who I am or what I could be or what the possibilities were for me. I think that Hawaii really did provide that because I had these these women and these gender nonconforming people around um, in my everyday. And so it felt a lot more intimate and close. I feel like you two are saying that imperialism and colonialism aren't always good. Is that I mean, is that what's happening here? <laughs> That's ironic because we're speaking is that what's English. Ha- I just want to be yes. clear. <laughs> None of our original languages, yes. <laughs> we'll be right back after we take care of some business. And some business. All right. Back to the show. 
So there's something else I wanted to ask you about because I was sort of thrown off about this initially. I heard that you hate the idea of passing. And as a person who's totally focused on myself and my experience, I was like, thought you were talking about passing as a, as a term that applies to race, black and white passing, mm, like white pe- mm. black people who are super light skinned, as the idea of black people who are very light skinned could pass for white, aka my two and a half year old daughter. But you're talking about a different type of passing. Can you talk about that and why you hate that idea or the term? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've done some, uh, a lot of my work has been about trying to complicate the specifically language that's used around trans women and some of it how it can also create and amplify misconceptions and stereotypes and so I think that the term passing for me again with this point of like bell hooks talking about language being a place of struggle um, passing as a term for me I think is really problematic in the sense that it's saying that in a sense that trans women are trying to pass ourselves off as quote-unquote real women, and we know that what they really mean is that trans women are trying to pass themselves off as cisgender women, when I don't think that that's the ultimate goal of a lot of trans women. I think that we are women, we know ourselves to be women, we live in the world as women, so we're just being ourselves. Now what we're talking about is that the cis gaze that looks onto our bodies and looks onto our identities are just seeing us as blending in. They take us as cisgender women because they see cisgender women as the barometer or as the ideal of what a woman is when we know women to be so many different things beyond just cis and or trans. And so for me, it's about um, kind of checking that language and shifting the way in which we think about that. Um, I'm not actively passing, if you use it as a verb, trying to say that I'm doing something, I'm engaged in a process, when all I am is engaged in a process of being myself and the things that you thrust into my body or any other person's body that you pass on the street is your stuff that's you projecting onto me. And so for me, I... I I prefer the term of just I'm being myself. And so like passing versus being is something that I'm often quoted about talking about. Um, But it's not that I hate the term passing. It's just I think that we don't have to accept language that someone else created for us to describe us and to describe our experiences. And so as a writer, I try to create um, narratives and try to just, you know, shift and complicate um, the way in which we talk about these issues. Because even I was just sitting on a couch on a talk show the other day and someone was like, oh, so you're passing as a woman. And, you know, in this space, it's like a daytime talk show. So I'm not going to, didn't want to like check and challenge her because I knew that she meant and she, she meant well and she was well-intentioned mm-hmm. and I didn't want to turn it into like an awkward moment. But, you know, there was a sense of like, ugh, you know, because she's saying I'm passing yeah. as a woman, right? Instead of just saying that when most people see you, they see you as a cisgender woman. But, you know, she didn't have language to say cisgender. Right. Um, and I don't think she thought as deeply about it as I do. And so I think that part of my work is trying to think a bit more deeply so that people can have accessible language to also check and challenge the way in which they've learned about um, trans folk and consume trans folks' bodies. I mean, I'm, obviously that's something you deal with constantly, that, that narrow definition of uh, womanhood. And there was a you know, uh, a famous comment uh, recently made by the novelist and feminist uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Uh, she said, I don't think it's a good thing to talk about women's issues being exactly the same as the issues of trans women, because I don't think that's true. Um, and she also went on to talk about how there is a certain male privilege uh, that trans women have, um, which, you know, separates, you know, that, 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 that means that you cannot conflate mm-hmm. the two. Um, how, when you heard that, first of all, I mean, she's an incredible author, incredible writer. When you heard that, how did how did you react to it? Um, I think I had 
deeply complicated feelings. Um, I wondered why she was asked the question. Uh, mm. <laughs> and then I also... <laughs> I wondered, um, the next layer of that, was also wondering about the spaces in which she came to understand gender, right? She's not an American writer. Um, and so like I think even talking about it in that way is different. I also thought that as a writer, um, her using, you know, to to speak back against a lot of the backlash that happened to her because the backlash was deep and real, which I think also speaks to the sense of how um, black people and black women are policed um, and held accountable in, in ways that are a lot more deep than I'd say like white women who have said transphobic stuff for mm. for decades, right, in the feminist movement who have not been checked and challenged in the same way that Chimananda was. Um, and so that, those are part of my complicated feelings. But I think also as a writer, I was disappointed that she said that she didn't have the language <laughs> to uh. talk about these issues in a more exacting mm. way. And so that was disappointing because I think that a part of her job, a part of the work that she does is she crafts stories and narratives and, and seeks language and, you know, picks up a, you know, dictionary and thesaurus and seeks out terms and, you know, all of that stuff. So her world is a world of words. Um, but on the other layer, I also think that if she probably was given the opportunity to say what Women, trans women she was talking about, I think she would have a pretty clear idea of who she was talking about. And so um, there was also that complication there. And so for me, also what was disappointing was the sense of that all trans women are like a monolith and that we all come to our, to our womanhood with the same experience. You know, part of the reason why I decided to step forward when I was 27, I stepped forward and told my story while I was working as an editor at People magazine. And I stepped forward because I never saw anyone like me in media. I never saw a young woman. I never saw one that was thriving. I never saw someone that I felt um, represented me in that sense. Um, because I think a lot of the portraits of transness were largely older, white, um, middle to upper class trans women that I saw in the media. Um, they oftentimes lived their entire lives presenting as white, cisgender, straight men, right? And so mm -hmm. there is, I think there is something about that experience that, you know, if you live 40 plus years of your life being seen by the world and perceived by the world by one of the most privileged spaces in which you can be seen or the space, um, privileged identities that you can be seen in America, you do have access in ways in which, say, a black trans girl who starts transitioning at, you know, eight to 12 years old does not have that same access to the same experience because she's growing up in a world where she was poor. Um, she was black before she probably even knew that she was trans, which speaks to my own experience. And so I don't, I think I was sad that Chimanana didn't see, um, say me or my, you know, black in, um, my black sister, my black trans sisters as a part of her in some way. But I do think that there are unique issues and I don't think there's anything wrong with stating that, that cis women have um, different and varying um, experiences and issues than trans women. But I think also when we say cis women, we have to also realize that black cis women have different experiences than white cis women, right? <laughs> and that, you know, black trans women have different experience than, experiences than white trans women. And so... I think that we just need to complicate when we talk about, when we say woman, we need to be more exacting with our terms and about who we're speaking about and how we're speaking about them. And when we don't have the answers and we don't know, I think that one of the most powerful yet vulnerable things to do is just to say, you know what, I don't know and I don't think I'm the best person to be asked this right now or let me get back to you on that. Oh, that's incredible. I, I, I mean, your answer is just incredible. And, and I just want to say the the, the beginning of, of your answer I found really fascinating, just the idea of, 
you know, was was she trapped by the writer? Why did the writer ask that question? And the idea of like what like it's it almost feels like w- was someone trying to cause trouble? Was somebody trying mm. to 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 put this light on her? To, and then you were saying how like immediately she got attacked in a certain way. Why was she attacked? And uh, that's that's brutal. And that's that seems very reasonable. Yeah, that's probably part of what happened. Yeah, completely. And I think that, it, you know, asking the question, I think there's nothing wrong with asking the question, but I wonder what the intention was. You know, assuming these were two cis people sitting in the room having a conversation and then all of a sudden transness comes up. I don't know what was happening that week. Like who was, you know, maybe Caitlin was around talking about something. And so, mm. you know, that's where Chimananda was coming from or maybe where <clears throat> the interviewer was coming from in that sense. But, you know, yeah, I think that one of the things we can all learn is to just learn to say that, you know what, I probably need to go investigate this a little right. bit more before I speak on it. Um, but I do think that it's, for me, there is a sense of like one of the um, most visible and vocal um, feminist on a global stage would be her as a writer. Um, her words have been, you know, part of pop culture lexicon now through Beyonce. And so I think that there is this sense of like she just because she has been able to articulate so eloquently about the need for gender equality that she's seen as an expert on feminism, where she is just she's a feminist. Right. And she cannot speak about every single woman's experience. And none of us can. But then we also have to have the agency to recognize um, our own smallness and humbleness in this space to say that we don't have the answers for every experience and you know what I'm gonna go I'm gonna go like learn about that first before I actually start speaking about it what it does too is that then people when someone like her who celebrated is then pulled off of her quote-unquote pedestal and put in her quote-unquote place it then makes other people feel as if I'm not talking about that issue at all like I'm not gonna even think about trans people or trans women I'm not gonna even try to speak about these issues because you see what can happen to her. What happened to her? Mm-hmm. It can happen to me. And so I think it creates this sense of like um, complacency in a lot of folk who are watching, who are just like, okay, I'm not going to try to be truly intersectional in my work because you can see what can happen when you try to speak about these issues that are not necessarily your issues, or you try to move beyond your own personal experience and talk about something that's that doesn't necessarily completely intersect with your own. Briefly earlier in the interview, you mentioned. Uh stripping when you were at the University of Hawaii. And, and you, mm. in, in the book, you talk about how uh, your feminism is rooted in the conversations you had backstage with your coworkers. And I'd, I'd love to know, you know, what kind of conversations you had and how that impacted you. I, it, it, I think I just had like such a, um, such a unique experience in the sense that the strip club was owned and managed by a Korean American woman. Wow. Um, she was in her 50s. We called her mama. And she treated us like her daughters. She always gave us sage advice. She was quick with like, um, you know, quick with one-liners, things that make you think really deeply and challenge all the things that you think you know about the world. Um, and so I think she created a space where we felt safe, number one. We felt protected um, and where we were not pitted against one another to compete for men's money and or their gaze. And so I think that even in that sense that our, the space of the club that I worked at was 
um, shepherded and created and shaped by a woman also helped um, create an environment where we were able to sit with a ch- sit with one another backstage and hear stories and share um, experiences or gossip about some of the guys out front who are too thirsty or too grabby or too whatever. Mm. Um, and so, but hearing you know largely from me. What I'm always deeply disappointed by when I hear stories about folk or women engaged in sex industries or the sex trade or sex work is that they are rarely ever heard from. They're just seen as these objects that pass by, that spin around on a pole, that don't really necessarily have a backstory or a voice. And so for me, in both of my books, I was very clear and intentional about ensuring that I gave these women that I spent so much of my youth with, so much of my coming of age and coming to self with that I gave them the proper due. Um, The only other writer that I've seen do that same kind of work would be someone like, you know, the amazing queen that is literature to me, um, Toni Morrison. Mm. She's done that consistently in her work where she gives voice to sex workers. um, And I just think that it's something that needs to be done more. Um, but for me, it's just because that's where my experiences were, were rooted. You know, my grandmother, so much of my feminism comes from, you know, my grandmother's and my aunt's kitchen table, um, of course, through popular culture, coming of age with Spice Girls and Destiny's Child, these messages of independent women. Um, and then, of course, you know, spending um, a lot of my early 20s um, in the clubs and also on the streets with these women, you know, trans women who work the stroll in Honolulu, and then also cisgender women who are working backstage at a strip club. Um, And so they were just part of my life. And so my feminism is rooted through my own personal experiences, of course. And oftentimes that is something that is seen um, as problematic for some reason to include sex workers, to include women who are using their bodies to take care of themselves um, in my feminism. But I think that it's probably the right space that I need to be in, that a lot of people need to be checked and challenged and to realize that um, these women also need to be supported and that it's not for us to say what they should do with their bodies, right? Because if we're talking about bodily autonomy and a woman's right to choose, then we should also be uplifting these women's rights to do whatever they want with their bodies and to take care of their families in whatever ways they feel they need to. And to realize, too, that um, women of color oftentimes heavily much more policed um, and degraded when they engage in, say, striptease or in sex work than you know, white women who are often applauded. You can have Dita Von Teese, you know, in a, you know, a big martini glass and celebrated by all of fashion industry and, and popular culture, but someone like Amber Rose or Black China or Cardi B are not seen in that same way or with that same level of, like, sophistication and acceptance. And a lot of that comes from the sense of um, the, the racial dynamics of, of, this, of the women that do this work. So the thing you that I think you do so incredibly well, which is so important right now, is complicating the existing narratives. You know, we have this idea of, of, of this person goes over here and this person goes over there and there's only one type of this person. And I think that and you were at the Women's March, which was a place that a lot of reporting out of it was like it was the white women's march. And then I've also mm-hmm. heard from like Alicia Garza, who's like, well, there was a lot of white women there, but I thought I should go too. And you were at the Women's March and spoke at the Women's March, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was your experience of that? Um, yeah, there were a lot of um, uh, white women in the audience. I think the stage was a lot more 
inclusive of women of color um, and at least two trans women on the stage. And so for me, I had helped um, the organizers. I was also on the policy table with Alicia Garza, who's a dear sister of mine. And we helped craft the guiding um, visions and principles for the Women's March on Washington. And so for me, it was just me being able to ensure that the things that I added into that document were brought onto that stage. I also knew that it was important that we were likely going Going to be collectively making history and I wanted to be a part of that and to engage in that space. I also thought that I had the capacity to do that work. For a lot of people, they, they would have been triggered to be in that space. But for me, I was in and out. I gave my remarks and I left. Um, I didn't <laughs> march um, because I just set my own boundaries in the sense that I didn't want to be surrounded by a lot of those folk. And the things that I brought up on that stage were seen as controversial. I brought up you know, sex workers' rights. I brought up, brought up undocumented translation. And I, I identified very publicly and open, openly about being a trans woman within the first minute of my speech. And some of that was met with boos and jeers in the audience that wasn't caught on camera, but it was there and I felt it. Um, and I think that for me, I think that, you know, the boos and the jeers, whatever, that's fine. But I think that a lot of people were probably affected or at least moved and maybe thought differently because of what I said on that stage. A lot of first time activists who are probably at their first protest will now go out and hopefully think differently about when they say feminism, when they say women, that they think about women of color, that they think about um, disabled women, that they think about undocumented women, and that they think about trans women, and they think they think about the woman that embodies all of those identities and, and experiences. And so that was my ultimate goal. Um, that's a part of the work that I have to do, and I think that because I have access and I've been given and I have privilege that has enabled me to be seen and heard, a part of my work has to be doing being in those complicated spaces that I may not necessarily want to always engage in, but I think are utterly necessary for someone like me who has been given the access and privilege that I have been given to to, to try to be a Trojan horse of some, some sort and in that kind of a space and blow it up in the best possible way. I know you've, you've spoken about not wanting to be like the spokesman for, for trans people. And at the same time, like, you know, once Caitlyn Jenner becomes <laughs> this huge figure and Caitlyn Jenner has has proven time and time again not to be intersectional. When you hear Caitlyn Jenner talk, is your first thought is, ah, I gotta clean this up. I gotta I gotta go up there and actually <laughs> say that's not right. That's not correct. Do you, do you feel an added pressure almost to like have to almost correct things or say like that is not intersectional and that is is more complicated than you know? What I love so much is that you know we've. Our culture has, you know, in the last six years of me doing this public work that I've been doing, um, that our culture has, I think, progressed. I think that there are so many other people who are checking and challenging her to the point where I don't have to clean it up. Mm. And there's also so many more, you know, I just saw that amazing clip of Amanda Seals, um, with that strange Katy Perry live stream at that strange dinner party that they had. And she's speaking to, um, to Caitlin and she, this is a black, you know, cisgender straight woman who's on a television show talking to another television star and telling her about herself. <laughs> so I think that there's just a lot to understand for like why people are talking the way they're talking about different things. I understand why you're talking the way you're talking. Cause I know, cause because I, I just don't understand what am I talking. I just said I believe in this country. Yes, and you, you don't? can say that in a way that I cannot. 
because you've had a different experience. Because this country is here for you. This country ain't here for me in the same way, sis. Uh, it isn't. And you, as a trans person, have to also identify the fact that this country hasn't been here for trans until, like, maybe 2 o'clock today. <laughs> In terms of Caitlyn as a as a figure, I think that she's done phenomenal work in terms of visibility and making specifically media gatekeepers who make the decisions on telling these kind of stories to then say we need to tell more trans stories. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think that she's done amazing work um, for trans communities. But I also think that she's deeply problematic, just as a lot of us are deeply problematic. But she is deeply problematic because of the sense that she's been given a microphone to be seen and heard on these levels, and isn't her politics don't necessarily align with the communities that she may show on her show. So she shows black and Latina and trans youth and people on her show who are struggling and who need social, you know, safety nets. But then as a conservative, she doesn't believe in big government and she doesn't believe in social safety nets. So it kind of just doesn't make sense. So there's a lot of these things in her own experience that I think that she is, um, I'm trying not to use ableist language, but she has a gap there in the sense of like, she has a gap in her comprehension um, because of the ways in which she's lived and operated and been seen in the world for 60 plus years um, before becoming um, a, a vocal part of, of this very much marginalized community that's trying to fight very hard for their for their own liberation and access to all of the things that most people have access to. Janet, you're amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for Thank having you. me. That was great. That was amazing. Thank you. Now go keep changing the world. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, Hari. Thanks, W. Kamau. Thanks, Janet. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. Thanks again to Janet Mock. Please be sure to pick up her new book, Surpassing Certainty, What My 20s Taught Me. To find out where she'll be speaking next, visit JanetMock.com. That's JanetMock.com. You can also follow her on Twitter, at Janet Mock. Also, thank you to everyone who's been commenting on Twitter using the hashtag PoliticReactive. It's been really fun seeing what you have to write and going back and forth with you. Keep them coming. And please check us out on Facebook. Also, we're on Instagram. Also, Kamau has a wonderful book out, a should-be bestseller, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell, and you should definitely pick it up at your local bookstore or wkamaubell.com. Kamau also has some live shows coming up next month that you absolutely have to go to. July 14th in Oakland, for example, he'll be opening for The Roots at Fox Theater. On July 20th, he's doing his show Kamau Right Now. That's also in Oakland. July 26th to the 29th, he'll be in Montreal at the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. And on August 3rd, he'll be in Chautauqua, New York at the Chautauqua Institution Amphitheater. Also, be on the lookout for the next episode of his CNN show, United Shades of America, every Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific Time. I also have my albums out. I have not taken them from the Internet. You can purchase those at Bandcamp or iTunes or wherever else. Also, I'm uh, hitting the road this summer. You can catch me in Salt Lake City at Wise Guys Comedy Club on July 9th. Phoenix, Arizona at Stand Up Live on July 12th. That's my debut in Phoenix. Denver, Colorado at Comedy Works Denver, July 13th through the 15th. In August, I'll be in San Diego. That'll be August 18th through the 20th at American Comedy Corporation. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, August 24th to 26th at Helium Comedy Club. Baltimore, Maryland at Creative Alliance, August 27th. Burlington, Vermont at Vermont Comedy Club, August 31st to September 2nd. And if uh, you, know, you want to get a head start, November 3rd, I'll be headlining the Wilbur in Boston. Visit hurrykundabolu.com for details. And once again, my brother and I will be doing our show, The Untitled Kundabolu Brothers Project, 
in Brooklyn at Littlefield on June 27th and in Seattle, Washington at the Theater Off Jackson on June 29th and 30th. All information at hurrykundabolu.com or more realistically, Google. Politically Reactive is a production of Topic and distributed by Earwolf. Our executive producers are Lisa Langan and Lita Malad. The show is produced by Max Jacobs, Laura Flynn, and Erica Moo. Thanks to Phil Circus for the extra help. The show is engineered by Dan Gallucci. Thanks to Jared O'Connell at Earwolf Studios in New York and Sam Kiefer at Earwolf in L.A. And a very special thanks to Adam Sonnefeld at Warrior Poets in New York City. And as always, thanks to Brontes Purnell for providing music for the show. <laughs>